aloha from Maui, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, your host every week for this program about personal development and spiritual development, drawing upon the mystery traditions, the spiritual traditions that are found veiled in all religions, hidden, if you will, or occulted in all religions, but going beyond religion, standing in many ways behind religion or above religion, meta-religion, and metaphysics, the same thing. The idea that physics is an appearance of laws that operate from beyond the veil, so to speak, behind the scenes. Uh, that The laws we know as gravity and magnetism, for example, are but a correspondence of greater spiritual laws. And indeed, that is our topic today, the ancient hermetic, the ancient Egyptian principle, the law of correspondence, as above, so below. This is also known as the second rubric on the Emerald Tablet. It's uh, fun to tell people about the Emerald Tablet because most people have heard of the, the Ten Commandments having been brought down from Mount Sinai by Moses, uh, the Ten Commandments of the Hebrew Bible, which have been incorporated into the Bible that's used by Christians, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, of course, the often called now the New Testament and the Old Testament. But even before uh, Moses, certainly long before Christ, but even before Moses, who was about 1300 B.C., there were the uh, sun worshippers, I'll say, uh, the, the ancient Hermetic tradition of, uh, of old Egypt in the time of the pyramids, and their prophet was a fellow named Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. Uh, if we look at the last name first, Trismegistus means three times great. And that's a veiled reference to the Trinity, the threeness of all things. We've done programs in the past on the nature of the Trinity as a sacred number, three a sacred number. Why seven is a sacred number? Because there's three above and three below and then one in the middle. So threes and sevens are very big numbers in metaphysics and mysticism. And... Uh, in the, the point being that both have centers. And uh, so when we talk about as above, so below, this second law from the emerald tablet, as above, so below what? That middle part that is essentially the soul. With heaven above and earth below, God above, humanity below, and uh, spirit above, and physical form below. But we really stand in the middle as the second element of that trinity. Now, Hermes Trismegistus, according to Plato and other ancient Greek writers, was found in the pyramids, his bones, his skeleton, and he had his arms wrapped around these emerald tablets that contained the secret teachings of the old Egyptians, named after Hermes, Hermetic Philosophy. Okay. By the way, you may think of Hermes as the FTD guy in the Greek pantheon, uh, uh, known as Mercury in the Roman pantheon. Uh, you know, the, the fellow that holds the caduceus, which represents the spine or the, the scepter of royalty with the two snakes, the ing, uh, 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 I'm having a mental block on the names of the two snakes, Ida and Pingala, there it comes, representing the positive and negative polarities of Kundalini, the life force uh, that winds its way like a DNA helix up the spine. And um, there's much in yoga and Eastern mysticism about raising the Kundalini. Well, if you look at this Roman god, Mercury, or the Greek god, Hermes, you see that same caduceus, and many medical symbols 
uh, include the caduceus. The true medical symbol is a single stick or a, a stick with a single snake. That represents physical medicine, pills and powders and potions. The caduceus, the stick with the wings on the top and the two snakes, is a representation of spiritual healing, um, metaphysical healing, although it's been confused. So it's, <laughs> it's not uncommon to see on the side of an ambulance or an office medical building uh, a caduceus when uh, the, the true symbol for physical medicine, surgery, and drugs is the stick with the single snake. It's sort of an interesting uh, it's called the Asclepius wand, the the uh, the stick with the single snake. Snakes have always played an important role in, I say always played, in ancient time. The snake played a critical role in that um, many cultures believed that snakes would carry away illness. And um, it's a major symbol in all of the creation myths and, of course, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the snake is made to be very evil because of its correspondence to incarnation and fleshly existence, if you will. So the second law on these emerald tablets offered by the Egyptian prophet Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. There you see Hermes and Mercurius and Trismegistus. A real guy, uh, according to the ancient uh, fragments that are still remaining. Uh, some believe, as Manley Hall uh, wrote in one of his books, that Hermes may actually represent a series of teachers. He's sometimes called the Atlantean, and it's believed that Hermes, either as a single individual or as a lineage of priests, carried the ancient Atlantean knowledge to the Egyptians, and that uh, he's the link. So we're going back as far as we can go in recorded history, which, frankly, is not that far, right? Three or 4,000 years ago, that's about all we got. If you figure that human beings have been on this earth for 3 million years, and the earth itself is 4.5 billion years old, to say that we've got three or 4,000 years of history and that's it is pretty humbling. And it should be. I mean, we just got here, folks. We, we just, <laughs> we've only been here a little while. And uh, we've had electric light bulbs and electricity for a little over 100 years is all. The TV for 50 years, computers for 30 years, home computers for 20 years, and... Uh, you can see the acceleration and the rate of growth. But we call it not the ancient wisdom so much as the ageless wisdom because these ancient ideas have stood the test of time. They're, they're valid and, and valuable. So the second law is what we want to talk about today, uh, called a rubric, in, interestingly, as laws often are by... Uh, those in the legal profession, rubric meaning red, but also meaning a law or a decree or an order. Because on this green emerald tablet that did exist until the Romans burned the library at Alexandria on two different occasions and sacked all of these ancient treasures. So we now know what was written on it, but the tablet itself has been lost. And the second law has come to be called the Law of Correspondence. That's our topic for the day today, abbreviated as above, so below. Um, as it is above, so it is below. And as it is below, so it is above. It says it both ways. And, again, come to be called the Law of Correspondence and referred to as a rubric because the inscription on these tablets, green tablets, mind you, were red inscriptions. Can you imagine how striking to see these giant, what it would appear to be emerald stones, but like maybe three feet by two feet, uh, a meter by 
by a half a meter giant green emeralds or green tablet of some sort with this bright red writing on it. And and further, unlike Moses' tablets, which everybody assumes were engraved, the scripture written on the Egyptian tablets, emerald tablets so-called, stood out in bas-relief, which suggests a technology that even today would be difficult to comprehend. Um, so just imagine this green tablet with these red letters standing out physically in bas-relief on the green tablet laying down the laws of the ancient Egyptians. We'll just look at number two today. They're very veiled, very esoteric, very difficult to understand, given that they're translated from these ancient hieroglyphics. Uh, but most interesting to many students of the wisdom is this second law called the Law of Correspondence, as above, so below. I'd like to explain it in the simplest way so that we can anchor into a real basic understanding of what that means. I've already hinted at it a little bit by referring to the Trinity a moment ago. And then we're going to go a little bit deeper into how this bears on real magic, how the law of correspondence really includes what's come to be known in modern times, at least here in the West, as the law of attraction. You've seen The Secret, right? You saw that DVD. It was so popular a few years ago. And then there was the book. And then all the guys that did this movie started making the circuit, doing the rounds. And this ancient secret, the law of attraction, well, it's really <laughs> part and parcel of the ancient Egyptian or Hermetic law of correspondence. This is where it comes from. Uh, again, it was lost in time, though known to the ancient Greeks, and then rediscovered during the European Renaissance with the emergence from Freemasonry of the Rosicrucians. They they really, how, how shall I say, promoted or helped to generate a, a fascination among European uh, uh, intelligentsia and the aristocracy and interest in these old Egyptian mysteries, and, and in particular this essence of alchemical magic. This is also known as alchemy. You might think of alchemy, again, as something that came out of the Renaissance era, and Dr. D and Robert Flood and those guys. But alchemy... It is that, but it's them rediscovering what we're going to talk about today a little bit, the ancient uh, hermetic philosophies of the pyramid builders. So what does this mean, as above, so below, this law of correspondence? Well, again, to anchor into the simplest explanations, these are often referred to as the great polarities in philosophy. Manley Hall from the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, the late and wonderful Manley Hall, often talked about the five great polarities, but there are more. There are many great polarities. For duality is one of the principles of the universe both horizontal duality, like the positive and the negative, or the yin and the yang that we learn about in Taoism and Buddhism and, and other Eastern philosophies that you find in electromagnetism and a kind of polarity. That's essentially yin and yang is horizontal polarity. But the great polarities are usually thought of as the vertical polarities. And this is not the yin and the yang. This is uh, spirit and matter is probably the primary polarity, or you could think of it as God and humanity. And to understand the law of correspondence as the Egyptians did, you simply need to think of these polarities as being like bar magnets. 
So if you have a vertical bar magnet with a north pole and a south pole, and the horizontal bar magnet with a north pole and a south, or I guess you could say an east and a west, because now it's horizontal, this is the yin and the yang of things, you have a cross. And this is the meaning of the cross in pre-Christian times. Many of the details of Christ's life are found also in the Egyptian philosophies that we're referring to today. The idea of a Messiah that is the son of a king uh, in the Egyptian teachings, that would be Horus, um, who um, lived his life teaching and with spiritual principles and was born of a virgin mother um, and um, uh, was um, uh, sacrificed and redeemed and Although the basic elements of Christian mythology are found in Egyptian mythology, including the basic trinity of, of king, prince, and queen, king and queen being the grand vertical polarity. Well, that's spirit and matter, king and queen. That's father spirit and mother matter. And the only reason that we have gender here is the ancients who really did not understand magnetism in terms of electricity, but they intuited the nature of polarity. They saw cycles in all things, the seasons even. So they knew there was a peak and a valley. They saw the waves rolling in from the ocean. Again, they knew there was a peak and a valley, a high and a low, an above and a below. So the grand vertical bar magnet or polarity is father spirit mother nature matter mater the material world that's that's feminine mater material because matter is receptive to the causative nature of spirit and so rather than refer to these grand polarities as positive and negative as if God is good and man is bad, you can see how that's filtered into our culture anyway. Um, even Pythagoras said the number two was bad because it's not the number one, you know, kind of an either-or mentality. But the idea of referring to the polarities not so much as positive and negative, but as masculine and feminine, again, is the idea that in nature, it's the male of the species that is outgoing, and it is the female that is receptive, life-giving, and nurturing, and they play a an equal role. In Christianity, you can think of this as the Father aspect and the Holy Spirit aspect. Okay, Holy Spirit is the way the Catholic Church refers to the Mother, right? Um, the only woman really in all of Christian myth uh, to speak of is the Virgin Mary and then, of course, Mary Magdalene, both named Mary. And the church went way out of its way to, to make Mary Magdalene a prostitute. And the Gnostic Gospels have pretty much indicated that's not the case. In fact, in the uh, Essene teachings, and there's a lot of evidence in the Gnostic Gospels discovered in the late 40s that um, the Essenes, that, that Christ was an Essene and that Mary Magdalene was one of the disciples. Well, the Catholic Church wanted that out of there. Women were unclean. Women are inferior. And so the idea of Mary being one of the apostles was most offensive to these founding fathers of the Catholic Church in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries A.D. And so uh, they not only denied that Mary was uh, the wife of Jesus and bore his children in France, but they deny also that she was a beloved apostle and turned her into a prostitute. There's nothing in the Bible that says that she was, but it's a teaching that's out there. Nevertheless, I bring it up because the idea of woman as less than sacred is, is true heresy to the mystic. 
the woman and the feminine nature as receptive to Father Spirit is um, an equal position and that you really can't have one without the other. Just like in a bar magnet, you could not have a North Pole without a South Pole. There, There is no magnetism without the polarity. So the idea that spirit is good and the material world is bad is a incorrect and oversimplified misunderstanding. It's not that the world is bad in contrast to spirit being good. It's that it contains fear. And that fear in the world is born of ignorance. And the ignorance promotes the fear, and the fear promotes the ignorance, and that's what needs redemption. It's not just to redeem yourself by accepting Christ as your Savior and redeeming your lifetime. It's about developing your conscious awareness to redeem all of your problems. And rather than oppose the negative in your life, You resurrect it, you save it, you understand it, discarding what is of no value, what is false, and retaining what is good in the arguments of those who oppose you, seemingly, or who might at first glance appear to be an enemy. You see, again, Christ the alchemist teaching us to love the enemy, but we, for the most part, don't know how. Uh, not if you're going to be a drive-by Christian or a Christian in name only, not read the books and not read the supportive literature. Or um, why not just be, as increasing numbers of people are, um, comparative in your spiritual quest? I think most of us at this mystery school are coming from a comparative place. You know, I, I personally feel like I'm a Buddhist, Sufi, Christian, Rosicrucian. That's what I put on my Facebook page. <laughs> I'm a Buddhist, Sufi, Christian, Rosicrucian, and, and there's no contradiction in any of that. And uh, uh, I should probably add Kabbalist to that as well, try and cover all the bases. So this law of correspondence starts with the grand vertical polarity, the bar magnet of spirit and matter, father and mother, causative and receptive yeah you got that well that's also god and man or the divine and humanity uh to the to the mason it would be the the architect and the building the middle element is the builder architect builder and building god is the grand architect and we are but the building the idea of developing yourself is to become the builder (laughs) not just the building that's the, another way of talking about the higher self. And heaven and earth would be another way of talking about uh, those vertical polarities as, again, ways of defining this ancient uh, Egyptian or hermetic principle, the second rubric of the Emerald Tablet, the law of correspondence, the shorthand as above, so below, meaning the material world is a reflection of the spiritual world. So if you're a note taker and you haven't started yet, there you go. You got the as above, so below, God and man, spirit and matter, heaven and earth, causative, receptive. The idea is that physical dense, this earthly universe, this universal earth, (laughs) this physical plane is a reflection of something invisible, spiritual light, if you will. So light has a source, light as it exists between the source and a point of reflection is invisible, and yet when light, you say, I can see that object, what you see is the light bouncing off the object. You see the reflection of the object. Now, to ancient people, that was pretty profound. In this day, when we think we're so smart and we know so much, few people even think that way, unless they're a photographer or a lighting person in, in Hollywood, you know, 
or uh, a painter that learns to use light, we don't really think of seeing the reflected light with our eyes. We we believe in this hallucination that I'm actually looking at this object, that somehow I actually see the object. All you see is the reflection. So to go even deeper into that model and see all of physical existence, even though it seems solid, you know it's just a dance of tiny particles. Remember in junior high they taught us about electrons and protons and these tiny little molecules, and then we found out about the subatomic particles, smaller still. So the most solid object is really very little matter and a whole lot of magnetic energy bound up in it. So-called solid is not solid, really. It is metaphysically understood to be a reflection of spirit. All right. So to most people, the real world is the physical world, and the spiritual world is invisible, unseen, and unknown, and you never can know it. To a spiritual person... The real world is the invisible and unseen world. It is a world that is felt. Not felt kinesthetically in the body so much. Not felt as an emotion so much. Similar to both, but not quite. Rather a more rarefied or a finer, higher frequency of feeling that remains when you use meditation to detach from your sense of the physical body, your thoughts, and your feelings. When you become mindfully detached in meditation or contemplation, you can feel the spiritual world and you know that you are that, that you are eternal, that you are infinite. You just know it. You know it as a realization, not as the product of logic. You cannot, as the ancients used to say, you cannot think your way to God. It has to be felt. And love is magnetic, so that's what lifts you in that direction. If you will to be a loving, kind, compassionate person, then you are attracted to love. And that accelerates your evolution. Your ability to understand the bigger picture is enhanced. You become more creative, more intuitive, and your values and ethics evolve as well. You become, as I've already said, kinder and gentler and more compassion. Uh, I don't mean kinder and gentler, as George Bush promised to be kinder and gentler, Again, I'm talking about the real world, the spiritual world, not the world of separated form so much. Yet, as above, so below. The idea that the physical world is a reflection of the spiritual world, and yet at the same time, here's the paradox, being a reflection, it's backwards. I mean... If you get a chance today, get a newspaper or a magazine, hold it up to a mirror while you look into the mirror and remind yourself <laughs> how how silly it looks uh, to see yourself. I mean, to, to have to deal with the print being backwards, I guess is what I'm trying to say. We usually look into a mirror. Most people look into a mirror and see themselves as a reflection, but don't really comprehend that your face is reversed and uh, yet if you hold a newspaper up it's like oh yeah I remember now well what does that mean well in one sense the horizontal polarities that I referred to before the yin and the yang the the ebb and the flow of life the cyclic nature of of life um, that the the ebb and the flow of that is I don't want to go off on too many different allegories here, but it's really a beautiful system to to think of the horizontal polarity as being related to the grand vertical polarity by a, a, a movement not unlike that of a pendulum. So that the top of the pendulum is fixed in heaven. Uh, fixed. 
unmovable, unchanging, eternal and infinite. It's not moving at all. But the bottom of the pendulum, of course, swings to and fro, left and right, forward and back, round and round. And the further up the the wire or the rod that connects the base of the pendulum to the top, the further up you go, the less dramatic is the swing of the pendulum. This corresponds to us becoming more God-like as we focus on love and allow ourselves to be drawn vertically from the bottom toward the top of the bar magnet. That back and forth that we suffer in physical form, the yin and the yang, the agony and the ecstasy, if you will, is moderated. So the higher you go, the less dramatic or extreme is the yin and the yang in your life. Again, these are rich and powerful models. And if you can get just a little excited about this, you can be your own teacher and do a little bit of Google search and read a few little articles, and I'll refer you to a couple here, and uh, have great fun with uh, tapping into and really connecting with people who lived three and 4,000 years ago who many many of whom were uh, every bit as sophisticated and in some ways, frankly, more sophisticated than the brightest minds that we have on Earth today. And you see that richness in this philosophy. So besides the as above, so below, we have another correspondence in this horizontal bar magnet that is implied it's implicit in the law of correspondence, but not spoken. And that is, as within, so it is without. And as without, so it is within. So what we're saying is in the, the implications all of this to the spiritual seeker is that in terms of the grand polarity, the vertical magnet, as above, so below, means to, to know God, you must know yourself. To look within and seek to know yourself is the only approach. Remember Christ said, nobody comes to the Father but through me. It doesn't mean you have to be a Catholic or a Protestant. It means you need to go to love, to your soul, your your better nature, your <laughs> Your, your, your better self, so that you can make this approach uh, to the most divine, to understanding as much as you possibly can with the brains that we have of who we are. Know thyself, and you know the universe. This is the beginning of the human potential movement. <laughs> right? This is personal and spiritual development. You want to know God, look into your own heart and you will see that you are a reflection of the most divine. Well, the alchemist then sees that in the horizontal fashion as well, as within, so it is without. In other words, your life is a reflection of your consciousness. People say thoughts and feelings create your reality. What you dwell upon, you tend to manifest, that that you go where you look, uh, you get what you expect. Life tends to be a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. We now talk about the law of attraction. We have a better understanding of the importance of setting goals and, and being positive thinkers, believing in what Barack Obama calls the audacity of hope. You know, you've got to have hope. Without hope, there's nothing. So the world around you then, is less the way it is because of the world itself. You perceive it as it is because of who you are. And to get a handle on that, even if it's a little slippery at first, can be an enormous breakthrough in your life. To begin to take ownership in the Talmud, and I think Anis Nin is also known for having said, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. Do you hear that? 
Can you step up and take ownership of that? And if you've been able to, then the perpetual challenge to each of us is to continue that process, to go to a deeper understanding, a higher perspective, forgive the mixed metaphor, to get a, a, a better understanding of the principle of everything is in everything. Now, we can see the law of correspondence in the idea that uh, every cell in your body contains the DNA necessary to replicate the entire body. Think about what is that, what the, what the implications of that, given what I've said about as above, so below. This ancient, truly ancient law of correspondence that every cell in your body, I mean, one hair, one strand of hair plucked from your head has millions and millions of cells, any one of which contains the entire map the genetic code for your entire physical body. When they do DNA tests, they swab the inside of your mouth and get little uh, cells, skin cells, tissue cells from the inside of your mouth uh, to map the DNA and to look for certain markers uh, to help identify the uniqueness of this individual. Right? This is another one of these grand polarities that God is the totality of things, and each of us are unique. But just to stay with this idea of the DNA to recreate your entire unique being is in not just a few of the cells or a bunch of the cells, but every single cell in your body, a fingernail cell, a bone cell, a blood cell, uh, a nerve ending. That's pretty amazing. That's a macro, micro, as above, so it is below. Here's your source, and here's your reflection understanding. An even simpler example of the as above, so below that the Egyptians called the law of correspondence, is the solar system and the molecule. Solar system, you have the sun in the center with the planets rotating around it on an enormous scale, larger than most of us can even imagine, just our solar system, much less the galaxy, much less the cluster of galaxies we're in, much less the 120 billion galaxies we believe are in this universe. Even just our solar system is this enormous thing in space. But then if we look at the micro end of that polarity, if you will, at the other end, you have the molecule with a nucleus somewhat akin to the sun, that would be the allegory, the center, and the electrons spinning around this nucleus, much like planets would rotate around the sun, as above, so below. But I want to make sure that I emphasize the follow-on to that, which really is the alchemical side of hermetic philosophy, and that's where we take that vertical principle and use it horizontally, as within, so without. That means if you want to change the world around you, not just your perception of it, but truly make a contribution to changing the world around you, you have to change your consciousness. You have to raise the frequency, the vibration of your consciousness. And then the world around you will begin to change. You see? Now, this is magic. This is the law of attraction. This is positive thinking. Um, I want to. I have a couple of things I wanted to share with you here. Oh, I know what I did with that. I want to share with you a little bit from the Kabbalion. Um, this is a title. I always want to be careful when I talk about the Kabbalion because it 
the word sounds so much like Kabbalah, um, which is the book of Jewish mysticism, right? This is not that. This is a book about Egyptian mysticism, and it's spelled K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N, Kabbalion. The edition that's um, the only book that's available called the Kabbalion that is true and authentic, is written by the three initiates and published by the builders of the Adidam, or builders of the Adidam, in uh, Los Angeles, a foundation set up by Paul Foster Case and a few other uh, members of the Order of the Golden Dawn in the, uh, I think, 1920s or 1930s in Los Angeles. And the three initiates are thought to actually be a pen name for Paul Foster Case himself. By the way, you can find out more about the Builders Foundation. These people, these principals have all passed away, but there still is a correspondence school on Figueroa in Los Angeles called Boda, Builders of the Adidam or Adidam. And if you just check out on the Internet, Boda.org, be like Builder, O-T-A, Boda, Builders of the Adidam or Adidam, just Boda.org, B-O-T-A dot org. And you can find out more about the Kabbalion. And uh, it's interesting, you'll see a lot of Kabbalah there. Just don't get uh, Kabbalah confused with Kabbalion. Um, Kabbalion is a reference to this one book about Hermetic Philosophy. And so, let me share a little of this with you from Chapter 7, when the author, again, the three initiates, but I strongly believe it's Paul Foster Case himself, the late Paul Case. And he says, how often have the majority of people heard repeated the statement that their deity, their God, was, quote, all in all? You ever heard that? And how little have they suspected the inner occult, uh, metaphysical, mystical truth concealed by these often carelessly uttered words. The commonly used expression is a survival of the ancient hermetic maxim quoted above, as the Kabbalion says, to him who truly understands this truth hath come great knowledge. And this being so, let us seek this truth the understanding of which means so much, in this statement of truth, this hermetic maxim is concealed one of the greatest philosophical, scientific, and religious truths. Case goes on, we've given you the hermetic teaching regarding the mental nature of the universe, the truth that the universe is mental, that it is held in the mind of the all. As the Kabbalion says, in the passage quoted above, all is in the all. But note also the correlated statement that it is equally true that the all is in the all. This, uh, this apparent contradiction, or apparently contradictory statement, is reconcilable under the law of paradox. It is, moreover, an exact hermetic statement of the relation existing between the all and its mental universe. We've seen how all is in the all. Now let us examine the other aspect of the subject. Now, let me close quote here. I think there's a better way to say this, and that would be that everything, seemingly separated thing that exists, all of this stuff on your desk, everything you own, all the clothes in your closet, all your shoes, all, all the silverware in the drawer, all, everything that you own, all the stuff in the world, and all the worlds, and all the suns, and the stars, and the galaxies, that everything that exists in the physical universe exists within the all. Okay, well that makes sense, right? Is part of the one life, or the one God. To see God, not simply as a giant man on a cloud that lives out in the edge of the universe, but to think of the divine in a 
transcendent way as the container of all things is essential to mysticism. But it doesn't end there. As cases suggesting in this law of paradox, that's only half the story. That everything is in the one is only part of the story. That the one is in everything. That God is not only only transcendent, but also imminent. Just like the DNA that makes up your body is in every cell in the body. Okay, Just like every molecule is contained within a solar system, if you will. Right. So it is also true that the all is in every seemingly separated thing. So God transcendent is the the big container of everything, and then God in, imminent, not immanent, but imminent, which immanent means about to happen. Imminent means contained within as part of its nature. So God transcendent would be the container of all that is, the totality of the one life. But God imminent is the reverse, which is that oneness in every seemingly separated thing. So rather than saying the all is in the all, the way I like to say it myself, and encourage other people to also, as you arrive at a better understanding of this, you you can just say everything is in the one and the one is in everything. Still challenging for most people, but a lot easier to understand. And again, a grand polarity, even somewhat paradoxical at first, but it's one of these grand polarities, and it's part of the as above, so below, that we find in this second rubric of the Emerald Tablet. Um, I have another part of this I want to read for you. It's a Word document. Let me bring it up. This is from uh, the introduction to the Kabbalion, where they talk about the law of correspondence. And there's just two paragraphs I'll read here again from the Kabbalion. This principle embodies the truth that there is always a correspondence between the laws and the phenomena of various planes of being and life. The old hermetic axiom ran in these words, as above, so below, as below, so above. And the grasping of this principle gives one the meaning, or rather the means, of solving many a dark paradox in the hidden secret of nature. These are planes beyond our knowing. But when we apply the principle of correspondence, we're able to understand much that would otherwise be unknowable to us. This principle of universal application and manifestation on the various planes of the material, the mental, and the spiritual universe, this is a universal law. So let me pause here, um, turning away from the quotation. How do you know God? How, How could you possibly know heaven? How could you get any kind of, beyond the faith of reading books written by men that are said to be divinely inspired, how could you possibly be a mystic and have an experience of the invisible and the unseen? It's near impossible without understanding that your experience is a reflection. It's like, if you could not for some reason see the sky... You could look into a pool of water and see the sky reflected in the pool and say, ah, as below, so it is above. Or if you could only see the sky and you were not near a pool of water, you could say, well, I can see the sky above, so I know what would be reflected in the pool. The only path, the only approach, the mystic would argue, to understanding your divine nature is to look for it in your heart, not in your mind so much, although mental discernment certainly plays a role. But it's got to be a quiet mind and a calm emotional nature for love as an emotion to take that 
that leap, like water to wine, that that resurrection from emotional love to spiritual love, where you start to see the union of all things and and the connection of all things. Everything is everything. Remember, in the 60s, people would have this experience on acid, and uh, nobody knew how to describe it. Uh, Carlos Santana wrote a song in the early uh, uh, Santana days called Everything is Everything. Well, what What does that mean? This is what it means. Uh, Paul Foster Case says the all is in the all. Everything is in everything. I think a better way of saying it after like 35 years of study, it's just my opinion, is everything is in the one and the one is in everything. For example, if you painted a painting or made a sculpture, that painting or that sculpture is owned by you unless or until you sell it or give it away. So it is in your life. It is part of your world. You fashioned it. You made it. But not only is this thing in your world, your universe, but as the artist, aren't you in the art? Are you not in the painting? Are you not in the sculpture? And when Shakespeare or Dickens writes their great characters of fiction, certainly those characters are within the author. But is not the author also within the character? Isn't there a little bit of Shakespeare in every one of those characters or a little bit of Dickens in every one of those characters? Well, of course, and both things are true. And what is a reflection of what? What is source and what is reflection? Allows you to orient yourself and then understand this as above, so below principle. One more paragraph by Case, and then we'll go to your questions. So again, if you're on the web and you have a text question, uh, you can use the uh, the box there that says uh, ask your question. Just click on that and it'll bring up a text box for you. Um, put in your question, your comment, your name, your city. Click on submit. Be sure and hit submit or I'll never see it. And if you're on the telephone and want to chat, star 2 on the telephone touchpad will raise your hand on my console and I'll come to you in a few minutes. But one final paragraph from the introduction to the Kabbalion by Paul Foster Case. He says, the ancient Hermeticists considered the principle, this principle we're talking about, the law of correspondence, as one of the most important mental instruments by which man is able to pry aside the obstacles which hid from view the unknown, with a capital U, unknown the divine God, the absolute. Its use even tore aside the veil of Isis to the extent that a glimpse of the face of the goddess might be caught just as a knowledge of the, and that's a reference to the physical world, right? Isis, mother nature, if you will. Just as a knowledge of the principle of geometry enables man to measure distant suns and their movements while seated in his observatory. So a knowledge of the principle of correspondence enables man to reason intelligently from the known to the unknown. Studying the monad, he understands the archangel. Tempted to get into that. The monad is a is an ancient, that's a great word, monad. The monad is the divine in you. It's um, it's your soul, it's your better nature. Uh, it's the part that, you, that your ego does not want you to find. It's the part that in Eastern philosophy kills the ego eventually. Uh, in Western mysticism we talk about, in Rosicrucianism and other mystical traditions, in a sense appropriating uh, the ego, the little brother. Seeing your physical reality primarily and ultimately as a reflection of your consciousness. Remember the Talmud, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. And then prove that by changing yourself. Just try one day to be more kind than you've ever been. To 
be more kind than you've ever been and see what happens. To be more thoughtful, to be more caring, uh, to look before you leap, to stop and think before you speak and see if that doesn't change the world around you. What if there's somebody who really, really irritates you, they really bug you, and you don't know why they're doing this to you? Well, what if instead of treating them in what you believe to be an appropriate way, given the way they treat you, what if you began to treat them as if they already were the person you want them to be? You just might start seeing some changes. Okay. This is deep. This is profound. This is heavy stuff. And it obviously has stood the test of time. Here we are 4,000 years later using personal computers to teach the most ancient philosophy, the oldest wisdom known. Know thyself as inscribed over the oracle to Apollo in ancient Greece. Lao Tzu, 500 B.C. in China, said the same thing. To know others is wise, he said, but to know yourself, that's enlightenment. All right? This is timeless. This is ageless. It's universal concept. To know yourself is to know the universe. It'll change you, and that's a great way to make a contribution to changing the world as well. Works both ways. Life's a two-way street. Okay, let me get rid of some of these documents cluttering up my screen and get back to my control pages, and we'll take some questions here. Uh, Let's go, first of all, to uh, the text questions. And those of you on the phone, press star 2 if you'd like to talk. Uh, Here it is. Here we go, and see all questions, see who's on here today. Okay, Carol Postel, Carol's always number one. She gets on before it even starts. Hello, Carol, thank you so much. Aloha, Carol's in La Habra. Also with us again this week in Canoga Park is Phil Jaffe, who I've only known for about 25 or 30 years, and hello, Phil. He says, ah, my favorite Sunday routine. Do you have some technical problems earlier? My connection dropped three times. I don't think so. I don't think so, Phil, but we'll check that out. Thank you for that. Another good friend for many years from Brea, California, is with us, Dave Murdy. Hello, David. So nice to hear from you. And he says, thanks for the teaching today. Look forward to seeing you next month in Maui. Yeah, Dave's coming to Maui. One of the... uh, Best guitar players I ever sat with, Dave Murdy. We'll look forward to seeing you, Dave. Say hi to Jackie and the kids for us. Lorelei in Tucson again. Uh, hardly misses one. She's always here on Sundays live. Thank you, Lorelei. She says, great topic. We're, we are uh, so much greater than our material problems if we could stand back and see what we call reality as a cosmic joke. Uh, peace and love to you and Doreen. Yeah, in many ways it is a joke. It's it's really pretty funny. In other ways, it's very serious because of the suffering that continues to exist. But, you know, religious people talk about God causing the suffering. Uh, it's a more evolved understanding to realize that God allows the suffering But we cause it. We invented the suffering. Humanity did. There's nothing divine about suffering here. We certainly would suffer by design the loss due to illness or age of people and even animals that we love. But the cruelty of war, of hunger, of racism, sexism, ageism, even looksism, how much you weigh, ism, the constant judging and the hatred. We do that ourselves. We invented all of that. So we'll have to solve it. Robert in Irvine. Aloha, Michael. Excellent class. You really reopened my eyes to truth behind this physical reality. Have a magical week. Thanks a lot, Robert. Appreciate that. Uh, 
uh, and from the other side of the house, Doreen <laughs> is with us and says, hello from my office, great webinar today, thank you, sweetheart. And imagine that signal went from the other side of the house to a satellite 26,000 miles in space, came back to Earth, bounced around the planet a few times, and ended up in my office. That's pretty cool. I love it. Okay, let's see um, who's on the telephone, and if we have anybody that wants to talk, star two to raise your hand. I see Robert. Anybody else want to chat? Um, let me get a time check here, first of all. I've got nine minutes after, so this is no problem. Let me go to Robert. And uh, Hello, Robert. You're on the seminar with Michael Benner. How are you doing? And believe it or not, at that point, I actually hung up on myself. So, sorry about that. Hope to catch you next week. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui.